Greetings. Welcome to White's Run Baptist Church Online. My name is Eric Newcomer. Today we'll be looking at the upward call number seven, work out your own salvation. Well, I hope the week has found you well, and we're going to open up the scriptures today, and we're going to talk about the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And so we're working from the book of Philippians, where we find that saying of Paul's, and we're working on a series uh, called The Upward Call, and the upward call of God is to be like Jesus Christ. And the sermon series is focused then on the mindset and practices that produce progress in response to that upward call. And so my hope is that this encourages us to strain forward to what lies ahead and to help others to do the same. So we'll be in the scriptures today in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 12. We're going to work through verse 18. Last time we took a look at this mindset of humility that was demonstrated most perfectly by Jesus Christ and you know, held out for us as an example to follow. Well, this time we're going to look at you know, how it is that we develop that mindset of Christ, uh, how it is that we bring these things out, how we actually work out our salvation, as Paul will say here in these. And here's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn that God wants us to use his power to bring forth good works from our salvation. And we do this by obeying him in all seriousness and with good attitude so that we can bear an effective witness to the world. So beginning in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, here's what we're going to find. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father God, we pray to you today that you would make these things known to us. You have given a command here in your scripture that we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We first need understanding of what that is, and then we will need your empowering to make that so. Lord, encourage us this day that we may in turn encourage others. Make yourself known through the reading and the preaching of your word. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we find the scriptures here very helpful, and I want to go back to these just for a moment and take a look at something here. As we notice, the, the passage begins with the word, therefore, and they teach us in Bible school, which don't really need Bible school for this, is when you find the word therefore, you need to explain what it's there for. Therefore connects us back to the previous passage, and I believe the primary connection is obedience. 
If we look in verse 12, it's about obedience. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now only, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, uh, work out your own salvation. And so this is about obedience. And if we look back up the passage a little bit, where it's speaking of Jesus Christ and speaking of him humbling himself by leaving his heavenly home, coming here, dwelling upon the earth, taking on flesh in order to sympathize with us and to fulfill his mission as being the ultimate sacrifice for sins. Here's what it says in verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so given this this example of Jesus Christ, that he is now highly exalted by God, that God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord, all of them. (laughs) So believer or not, everyone will bow the knee. And this is uh, set up here by the obedience of Christ, that his obedience in humbling himself and going through with the mission to go to the cross and offer himself in our place for sins uh, resulted in this great exaltation. Paul takes this and turns and says, therefore, my beloved. And so it's as if Paul is saying, um, so this is what Jesus did. You do the same. You've been obedient while I was around, now even more so when I'm away. And he begins then this next section with this imperative. Work out your own salvation. And the rest flows from there. What I want to do is I want to go through the passage. I'm just going to pick a few key phrases here to describe precisely what Paul means, more or less in order of importance as I see it. And so what we're going to see here is this first phrase, work out your own salvation, right there in verse 12. Now, Paul plainly is not speaking of performing works in order to be saved. He's not talking about making our salvation possible. What he's talking about is to work toward its completion or its results. Let me show you how. First of all, uh, way back at the beginning of the letter, the letter was was, uh, addressed to the saints, the saints at Philippi. And so that's an important point because this means these are people that are already sanctified. These are people that are already set apart by God. In other words, Paul believes he is sending this letter to believers and he is addressing them as such. And so when we come to this work out your salvation, well, he's not telling them to be saved. They're already saved. And he uses a word that really helps us understand what it is he's saying. This word that's translated as work out means to produce or accomplish. And the emphasis of the word is not just the process, the work, but the emphasis is on the result to work something to a conclusion. And that's why we translate it as work it out. In other words, bring this to its conclusion, uh, move it on, so to speak, until its completion. Paul uses this word in places in his letters to describe something being accomplished through a person. 
In the book of Romans, you find this used extensively of sin working through a person to produce evil works or condemnation. But often elsewhere, he uses this in such a way as to uh, speak about God producing good things through people. As in uh, what we find here in Romans 15, 18, he says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. That's the word there. What Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. And so Paul uses the word here to talk about what Christ had done through him. This is one example of how he uses it. Another one is right there in the passage that we're working with. And so what I uh, want you to see by that is that this is not about coming to salvation. This is very importantly uh, about the entire work of God through us because it doesn't end with our initial coming to Christ. Remember way back uh, several sermons ago in a sermon called To All the Saints, I reviewed for us three aspects, a threefold aspect of salvation, uh, speaking uh, near the series here. And this threefold aspect of salvation is simply this. There's three tenses, if you will. We have been saved, and examples of that would be in the passages where it speaks about you've been saved by grace through faith you've been saved, you know, in Ephesians, Romans, other places. That is the initial salvation when we first, as people say, come to faith. Um, the second is that we are being saved. So the word saved is used and salvation is used in the Bible sometimes to speak of the process we're currently in. In other words, our salvation is working itself out. We are drawing closer to Christ. We're becoming more Christ-like. We're starting to walk in his works more. And so this is about the present process of improving the Christian that God is doing. And then finally, salvation is used in the future tense to say that, indeed, we will ultimately be saved when we come into the presence of Christ at, at our death or at his return, whichever comes first. And at that point, we will be completely perfected. Uh, the, the, the salvation will be complete at that point. And so here in Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul is speaking in terms of this present salvation, our sanctification, as it's called, in which we glorify God by working with him to accomplish his purposes in and through us. And in this present stage of salvation, we progressively experience more and more of the blessings of salvation. So he's talking about this present sanctification. We struggle to be more Christ-like, to get the sin out of our lives and walk in disobedience. We draw closer to God. We accomplish the, the works glorifying and pleasing to him, visible to those around us so that we can glorify God in our work. And this is what he means by work out your salvation. Bring forth from inside what God is doing in you, what God wishes to accomplish through you. And that is what he means by work out your own salvation. Now, it's important to understand that we are to work out our own salvation strictly by the power of God. And this is no small matter. Uh, when it says here in these, in these next verses here, um, 
It is God, verse 13, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he tells us to work out our salvation. So there's clearly something he wants us to do. But then he puts this qualifier on it in verse 13. It's God who works in you, both to will and to work. Now, when the word uh, here to work out is used elsewhere in the context of believers, it actually has as its primary subject God. In other words, it's God who's doing the working out when we really analyze the context and the meaning of the verses in which this word appears. And so um, here, although it's imperative as to work out your own salvation, it is in the middle or passive voice, and that shows that we're not necessarily the primary movers in this action. The command then assumes that this is accomplished by the power of God in cooperation with our efforts. And so it's stated plainly in that verse 13 there, it's God who's doing this work, both to will and to work. Now notice it says to will. So God works in us to will. In other words, he works the right desires in us. He in conforming us to the image of Christ, his Holy Spirit is then giving us new desires. There's a verse in the Old Testament that I love in Psalm 37, 4. Psalm 37, 4 says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, a lot of people think, well, okay, that means if I put God first, he's going to give me what I want. That's not what it's saying. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, he'll give the desires. He puts the will in there. He puts the desires in there. And so, you know, our resistance to what God is trying to do in us is very often just because it's not what we feel like doing. It's not what we want to do. But rest assured, if we will cooperate with him, he will make us desire the things of heaven, and then he will give us the power to fulfill it. So he gives us, he works in us to will and also to work. And really this is how it is with any imperative of the New Testament. That is any command we find in the New Testament, we do not go it alone. God always empowers what he commands. If he was a God who simply gave us a list of a bunch of stuff to do and said, now go do it, he would be cruel because Our nature is broken. This is why Jesus came, that we are sinners and we are bent towards sin. That is our default position. That is most what we want to do all the time. And so as rebels to God, it is important that he would give us the will and he would give us the power. And so he enables us. And rather than do it for us, he does it through us. And so it is indeed powered by him, but we cooperate in this process. Our toil and his power together accomplishing great works for his name. And this is why the New Testament consistently gives glory to God for the accomplishments of believers. When Paul recognizes something great that a a church has done, that people have done, he gives glory to God. He thanks the people, but he gives the glory to God because it's God who willed and worked that through those people.
So Paul is commanding that we utilize this God-given power to bring results for our salvation. He also does this for his good pleasure, according to that verse. You notice at the end of that verse, it says, um, for his good pleasure. This means according to his will, that this is what he wants. And some approach the Christian life as if it's our life and we've added God to it. This is the problem with so much of our language of conversion. When we say, I made Jesus my Lord and Savior, or I gave my heart to Christ, or I invited Jesus into my life, none of those phrases are used in the New Testament. And the reason they're not used is they are man-centered phrases. It's who's in charge when you say, I ask Jesus into my heart, or I gave myself to Jesus Christ. It's man that's in charge. And what we say matters. What we say affects how we think and how we picture things. And so it would be far better to say, as the Bible says, he saved me. He saved me. And this is important because this transitions us when we have the right language, when we have the right attitude and understanding of salvation, that it is the work of God in us. We go from saying, God is my co-pilot to saying, God is the pilot. <laughs> and that's a big difference. That's a really big difference. In other words, uh, he's not helping us out. He's not helping us become better in our family or in our job or more comfortable or more healthy or more successful. No, indeed, we are working out his salvation in us. And so then this puts the focus on him and his will, not on our will and our desires. Now he does in, in believers improve them and make them more successful in every area of their life. But this is a byproduct to pursuing his will. And it's his priority to bless us, first of all, with his presence, with relationship. It's how Jesus defined eternal life, is that we would know him and know the Father. And then he imparts to us good character and spiritual blessings. And these are the things that often result in improvements in our life, but it's not the improvements in our life themselves that are the purpose here. It is the drawing near to God to glorify Him, to serve Him, to know Him forever. And so these uh, material temporal blessings are often a byproduct, but in Christ we trust His will. And we have a complete focus on His priorities because that is best because he loves his people. He, he's going to shower all of his people with heavenly blessings, peace that surpasses understanding, joy inexpressible, but according to his will and his good pleasure. We have to recognize that it's for his good pleasure to bring us into alignment with what he wishes to accomplish, the very purposes for the desires and the abilities that he imparts to us. Now we're going to back up a bit and cover a phrase that you're probably curious about, and that's this phrase, with fear and trembling. And so he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And this is not to suggest that we have anything really to be afraid of, 
perfect love after all casts out fear. He's writing this to believers who have been by the grace of God saved through their faith. And so they have not need of fear because we're on the side of God. Now, who are those who we are those who are by faith are on the side of God. So we have no one to fear. He's placed us here by his grace. What this means is a sense of awe or sober-minded concern. Here's what I want you to get out of this phrase. With fear and trembling suggests that we take great care in obeying the commands of Christ, knowing that our intentions are judged and our actions affect the reputation of Jesus Christ. This is to do things in awe of God, in concern for Him. Awareness of how awesome Jesus is, because when we think about the previous passage that this is Christ and, and He is supreme and everything, but yet He humbled Himself to the point of death, death on a cross, and now God's highly exalted Him to the highest position in the universe. That should give us a sense of awe. That should make an impact on us to understand that, that this Jesus Christ, this one who has saved us, is supreme above all things. That should make us reverence him more than anything else in the world. And this would also have not just a sense of awe and worship, but with fear and trembling suggests that we are concerned for the displeasure of God, for godly discipline. There are times in our life when we really want things to go right. Have you ever had the kind of situation where it's an important thing? Maybe it's, you know, a, a big event like a wedding or something or someone's big anniversary that you're throwing for them or whatever. And you want everything to go just right. You want the, the, the food to come out well prepared and done properly. You want the timing of that to work out. You don't want any kind of distraction of any kind of a disaster to happen. You want the weather to cooperate sometimes, which if you're in the Midwest like I am is, is really a roll of the dice. But when you plan a big event or you plan something uh, for people and you want to bless people with something, you want it to go perfectly well. Isn't that how everything we do for Jesus Christ ought to be? Because here is the one worthy of our worship. Here is the one who paid the price for our sins. Here is the one who has taken us from death to life, who has blessed us with all the blessings of God in the heavenly places. And now we're going to do something for him. We're going to want to be serious about that. We're going to want to be deliberate about it and sober-minded. It's not something that we can just halfway do when we get around to it. It's something that we want to prioritize and be obedient and be faithful in whatsoever we do. To have as our first and foremost priority pleasing and glorifying God. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to do everything perfectly because I'm the type of person, and maybe you are, I can get paralyzed by perfectionism. And in fact, if I didn't have deadlines on things, they would never get done because I would constantly be planning how it can be done perfectly. 
What I'm saying is let's give it our very best efforts with the time, materials, and, and etc. that we have. And it also means that we have pure motives in what we do. Because remember that this is God who judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so when we do things for him with fear and trembling, it means that we realize he knows our motives. We pray and strive for pure motives in serving him, the motive to glorify him, the motive to make him known to others, to make disciples. These are good and perfect motives to impress people, to be accepted by people, to wow the church with what we're doing. Those are not the right kind of motives. The kind of motives God is looking for are those that are in line with his, his to glorify him and to make him known. Now this is also, uh, with fear and trembling, another aspect comes into this that I want to point out to you. And this is that we have his authority. We carry the authority of Jesus Christ in what we do for him. Look what he says. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All of it, right? Then the very next thing he says is an imperative to us connected with the happy little word, therefore. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so what the implication here is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and it is that authority which I send you. And so he sends us with all authority in heaven and on earth to go and make disciples. And that is, should give us some fear and trembling because that means we're his ambassadors. We take his power and authority and we go and do his mission, his will for us. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ. In other words, we're representing the king to this foreign land that we are dwelling in. And so we're named for him also. This should give us fear and trembling. Do you realize in the book of Acts, you know, it reveals Christians what happened then <laughs> and it was recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. It says uh, he brought them to Antioch and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This wasn't some idea that came after the New Testament was formed or after the first century. No, this came during the apostolic era when the apostles were preaching and everything, when they were ministering in Antioch. That's when that first word became known. And it becomes known to the point that even late in the book of Acts, and this is many years later after what we saw there, in Acts 26, 28, Agrippa uses the word Christian. He says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Well, this was a earthly ruler. This was a man who was not a godly man, but Paul was witnessing to him. Paul taking the opportunity in prison to witness to those who held him captive. And uh, he uses this word Christian. Now, what does that have to do with fear and trembling? It's because we literally carry the name of Christ with us. What we do reflects then directly upon him. And I can't express to you how many times that I've met people who are not involved with church, don't have faith in Jesus Christ, and they have some complaint about how some Christian behaved. 
Now, I know most of that is due to the fact that there are many people who call themselves Christians that are not truly Christians. They're not truly converted. They're not working out their salvation with fear and trembling. They've joined on to some kind of club and never really had the interchange that marks someone that is truly a believer in Christ. So this is a part of what gives great fear and trembling to the work that we do because we do it for Christ. We do it for the greatest power that is in the universe, the one who holds all things together with the power of his word. And that is what this means by fear and trembling. Now, the purpose he gives here, and he gives it rather indirectly, that we are to shine as lights in the world. Look at Philippians 2.15. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Oh, yes, we'll get back to that in a minute that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. A consistent theme in the Bible in the Old Testament was for the nation of Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. And in the New Testament, it's for the people of God to be the light. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing what kingdom people are going to be like. And by doing so, he's actually describing to us the way of salvation. But don't have time to talk about that now. In 5, in verses 14 through 16, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand that it gives light to the whole house. And in the same way, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see this? Our good works result in glory to our Father who is in heaven. God works the will and the work in us to bring himself glory. Our love for one another is one of the primary ways we do this, that that we can be identified as disciples of Jesus. Now, I'd mentioned the Great Commission. That's our ultimate purpose, our first mission in glorifying God. Go and make disciples. Why? Because that's going to glorify God. When people come to know God, when they're reconciled to God, he's glorified in their eyes. And he's glorified in the eyes of other others who see this happen. And so this is all wrapped up in our mission to to do these things, to shine as lights in the world. Now, in order to shine as lights in the world, we not only need to do the uh, right things, but we need to do them in the right way. Let's take a look back there at Philippians 2.15 again. And I warned you that I'd get back to these, these words because we all know this is going to be trouble for us. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And that leads right into what he said about us being lights in the world, shining as lights in the world. Disputing may have been a problem there at the church in Philippi. We do know that there was some disunity there. Look in chapter 4, verse 2, what it says. Uh, After all these things, Paul says, you know, nearing the end of the letter, I entreat... Euodia, and I entreat Suntuki, if that's how you want to say it, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement to rest my fellow workers whose names are in 
the book of life. And so he asked these two, you know, I, I entreat them, I'm begging them, I'm asking them to get along, <laughs> to agree in the Lord. There was some kind of a dispute there. And so he tells us then back here in chapter two, you know, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so disputing may have been a problem there. He asked them to agree. And very much in the letter, he seems to be pressing this church toward greater unity in the body of Christ, as he always does in his letters, but maybe even more so in his letter to the Philippians. And so we have a continual dispute, of course, with the world, but even that dispute we're supposed to undertake with gentleness and respect, according to Peter. No, the dispute he's talking about is disputing among ourselves. We have to be united. Now, can we disagree on things and discuss them? Yes, uh, especially doctrines. We're going to disagree on some of the fine details, uh, the, you know, the meaning of particular scriptures and the way to interpret certain doctrines of the Christian faith. But that is essential that we dispute in those areas in a friendly kind of way with all of us humbly submitting to the word of God and all of us taking in what the others say and rightly dividing the word together. This makes us stronger because as we delve into these things, as we talk about these things, then we actually become stronger in our faith by having searched the scriptures. And so that is indeed of benefit to us. But when we get to a dispute, something that we cannot agree on, that's not a doctrinal issue, but maybe how we're doing something, maybe how something's being done in the church or how someone was treated or things like that, those things need to be addressed immediately. Not all of us are going to agree on all things. Now we have to agree on the essentials, on the gospel. And when we go witness together, we'll not dispute about secondary things in front of people because the lost are not ready for that. Those things are spiritually discerned to be done among the people of God. They'll misinterpret it as an unfriendly dispute. But we will go and we present a unified gospel that Jesus Christ died to pay the price for our sins. He rose again to prove that it was all true. And he offers freely to us salvation through believing or trusting in him and repenting of our sins. This is the clear teaching. We will not dispute on these things. If you have a dispute with one of those things, you need to go find a non-Christian church somewhere. Now, do we get in disputes among ourselves? Of course we do. But we have very clear instruction from Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, the right procedure. If we have a dispute with someone, we go to them personally. And we go to them right away, ideally. And we go to them privately. And we try to iron these things out. If that doesn't work, we take someone else with us. Maybe they can act as a mediator. Maybe they can at least be a witness to what's going on. We try to work it out. And if that doesn't work, then and only then is it brought before the rest of the people of the church. Now that's important because in all these things, the ultimate you know, end was to bring it before the people of the church. And perhaps if this was a sin issue or something like this, or or an unresolvable dispute, this person would be dismissed from the assembly of the church. But none of this would be public. 
we, we are to do things without disputing, especially in the eyes of others, in order for us to shine as lights in the world. This is why Jesus says, uh, if you ought to settle with your brother on the way to court, don't go to court. Don't take a fellow believer to court. That shouldn't be necessary. We should be able to handle that dispute internally because after all, we have the Spirit of God, the ultimate judge of the universe. And if indeed we are true believers, then then all parties should be able to come together in the unity of the Spirit and come to resolution. So this is a, about disputing. It's also about grumbling. Now grumbling in this um, do all things without grumbling or disputing. This should remind us of the Old Testament and the murmuring of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And indeed, they, they did have a tough time of it. They were in a desert. They didn't have all the yummy food of Egypt. Uh, but they had seen the power of God. They had been freed from their slavery. They were on their way to a great land of their own grumbling or murmuring for these people was, was completely inappropriate, and it's inappropriate among the people of God today. We have difficulties, but they shouldn't be grumbled about because they're used for our betterment. And this is critically important for us to understand. When we encounter the promises that we have for us is that when we encounter something difficult, something bad, according to, let's see what Paul says in the book of Romans here in 818, the, can, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So everything that we do has to be done with an eye to this future fulfillment of Jesus Christ and the ultimate salvation that's coming to us. And so there shouldn't be any need for grumbling now. But not only that, we know that our difficulties actually work for the purposes of God. He says later in the same chapter, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's only for those who love God. And so that means even the difficulties are going to be used for good. And we see this very clear in the book of Romans. He talks about how we rejoice in our sufferings because that produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope, and hope's never put to shame. Peter echoes the same kind of thing. You know, if uh, necessary for a little while, you've been grieved by various trials. Notice he says, if necessary. That's the word of divine imperative there. He says, so that your your faith can be tested and it can be shown to be genuine and it can bring praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And James says the thing, same thing. He says, boldly count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because they produce steadfastness. They make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The believer in Jesus Christ really just ought to welcome the difficulties as much as he welcomes the easy parts of life, because we know God is working in them. These two things, grumbling and disputing, seem to be the key to being blameless and innocent in the world. And this is important, uh, you know, no small point to us. The world already doesn't like the gospel. The world, in fact, hates the gospel. But if the gospel is presented by us and lived out in our lives without grumbling or disputing, what can they say? There's no cause for accusation. That's why we're to be blameless and innocent on the part of the world. They should be able to look at us and say, well, those people are actually living what they claim. They're actually living out 
what they believe. Believers indeed should stand out like a light shining. And if we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, careful to avoid grumbling and disputing, we certainly will stand out because the world is full of grumbling and disputing. And it should not be so in the body of Christ. Now, grumbling is a really big deal right now in this age in which we live in, the age of social media. And this indeed is, as the scripture says there, a crooked and twisted generation. In our context today, society praises and celebrates things that are, that are an abomination to God. The practices of our society are nothing short of pornographic at every turn. And the self has been made God. And sexual expression is the primary form of worship. And then you get into the thinking processes of the mainstream that have been so corrupted by sin that logical thought is almost a thing of the past. It's like it's not even understood anymore. And what comes forth at us from our culture is full of contradictions, completely unreasonable, illogical, and has no objective basis on which to stand. And the truth is despised. We are absolutely in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. But in the midst of that crooked and twisted generation, we are called to execute our mission to make disciples. We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we're called to do these things without grumbling or disputing. Think about that. I know it's hard. It is very hard. I have a very strong, sarcastic wit. God gave me a sharpness of wit and a tongue that, that is quick to ridicule the opposition. I'm very quick to point out the logical inconsistencies of people today and, and do it with an attitude and do it with tone and speak to them as if they are fools, which indeed the Bible says they are. But really, aren't we all? in a way, foolish to some extent, foolish insofar as our sanctification's not complete yet, foolish insofar as God chose the foolish things of this world to sh shame the wise, foolish insofar as, it, as at a time we were lost. And we have to look at the world as they're no different from us, but by the grace of God. And for that grace, we ought to share it as grace. We ought to share it as Christ did. See, Christ looked at the world and, and he saw far more clearly the difficulties and the wickedness of the world than we ever will. But he looked at them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He didn't grumble or dispute. He didn't cry out when they were taking him to be crucified. He didn't, he didn't object to his illegal trials that he was subjected to on the way to being crucified. Follow his example. The one who was so humble, humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. We ought always to remember and to point out that redemption is the better path. 
And when the world comes at us and they're grumbling and disputing among themselves and they've got a grievance or whatever, we ought to validate some of their concerns. Because indeed, when, when people cry out about injustice or things like that today, indeed there is great injustice in the world. There is great inequity in things. The problem is they, they identify the wrong source of the problem and they identify the wrong solution. But indeed, there are problems. Now to be addressed, they ought to be at least be acknowledged by us as a touch point where then we can come in and we can alternatively explain why there's a problem, why there's any problem in the world, why there's sickness and sin and death and inequity and hatred and, and discrimination and why all these things exist. Well, it's because of sin. But let me tell you what God's doing about sin right now. And that's the gospel message. Now, we can be different in the world, and we should be different than the world. We should shine as lights in the world, and by doing things without grumbling or disputing. Now, finally, he says um, in verse 16 here, holding fast to the word of life. In other words, you know, that's, that's done in a, a participle kind of way, that that would be underlying how we're doing the rest of it. How are we working out our salvation and all these things and shining as lights in the world and all that. Um, all the while we're holding fast to the word of life is what this means. The word of life is our life preserver. Uh, does the word of life here, and I spent some time trying to figure out what does it mean by the word of life? Does it mean the message of the gospel? Does it mean Jesus Christ himself, who is the word, but is also the life? Uh, well, I came to the conclusion, yes, it means one of those or all of those. It, it's, it is Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. This is about we're holding fast to the word of life, which is also the word of God, because Jesus is the word of God, and all of the scriptures are about him. All of the scriptures are the good news of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So indeed, our closest thing we can hold fast to is the Bible. It is the Word of God. It is the Gospel. It is, it is a Jesus Christ Himself. And so, in the day of Christ, we may be proud that we did not run in vain. So Paul's concerned about having run in vain. He expresses his concern several times. And what he means is, he wants to see people persist in the faith. He wants to see them continue so that he knows that they were genuine converts. He wants to know that he hadn't labored in vain, that they just took on Christianity as, as a fad, as a trend, as a hobby, and they weren't really converted. No, he wants to know they're the real deal. And so that, that's his hope. And how do we do that? We hold fast to the word of life. In other words, we hang in there, we stay there, we cling to it no matter what happens, no matter how crooked and twisted the world gets, no matter how difficult it becomes to shine as lights in this world, we hold fast to the gospel. We hold fast to Jesus Christ. That's our key to making it through. It's only the word of God that is reliable, that is unchanging. That is what's most helpful. If we cling to Jesus, to the gospel, to the word of God that brings life, we will have in our hands the answers that we're looking for, the very key to working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Holding fast to the word of life is the assurance of salvation. Perseverance in the Bible is held forward as a great sign of genuine conversion. The genuine believers in Christ will hold fast 
no matter the obstacles. Remember what it says there in in Romans chapter 8 that we went to earlier. He's working all things together for the good. And then that goes on to say, what therefore can separate us from the love of God? What could possibly come between us? Well, indeed, for the true believer, nothing, because we're holding fast to the word of life. The genuine believers will hold fast no matter the obstacles. Now others might dispute and grumble. The world might be crooked and twisted. Our own faith journey might experience setbacks and failures. Failures. We might have monumental personal failures. But if we hold on to the word of life, we can be more sure that we are a genuine work of God. As the walk gets tougher, as the world more greatly opposes the gospel, the true people of God will stand out more and more. The true people of God will have their boldness increase and with it their assurance because they're holding fast to the word of life despite all the circumstances, despite the opposition, despite any cost of holding fast to the word of life. So what do we do with these great commands uh, that we have learned today? Well, let's see. Um, uh, I didn't put them on here. I will just talk about them briefly here. Here's uh, what we want to do. First of all, make sure it's God who's working in you. So remember it said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. Make sure it's God who's working in you. The, the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ came and paid the price for sins. He took the wrath of God upon himself as he hung there on the cross. And in doing so, he took the place of us who believe. And so believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him for your salvation. Put down whatever it is you're trusting in now. You're trusting that you're a good enough person to meet God, or you're trusting in that you said a prayer or you got baptized or something like that. How do you know you're going to heaven? The answer needs to be Jesus Christ. He's our only hope. We may have been baptized, and we should be, we may have said a, a prayer, and indeed we should pray. All these things are important and necessary, but the salvation is accomplished by Jesus Christ. Is it him I'm trusting in, or am I trusting in my good works? Make sure it's God who works in you. Make sure it's him who, in whom you trust. Uh, secondly, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let's obey that command. And here's how we want to think about this, because thinking about it is really going to be helpful in bringing it forth. Uh, this word, to work things out, uh, this was used in the old days, and one of its many uses, this is a very flexible word, but one of the ways in which it was used was to talk about mining. In other words, going into the mine and bringing out what's valuable. So a, a mine to accomplish something's got to bring forth the gold or the precious jewels that you're going into the mine to get. This is how we want to look at this in our Christian life. We're working out our salvation because Christianity is inside out. All the other religions are outside in. All the other religions are, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to, you know, 
be this particular person and I'm going to hold these certain truths and then God's going to approve me. But Christianity is inside out and it speaks of it like this in the Bible that he takes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. That he literally changes our heart. In other words, this is an internal change first. The internal change comes first. And then the Christian life is about going into that new heart and bringing out the gold and the precious jewels, the things that glorify God, the things that shine like lights in the darkness. This is how we want to think about working out our salvation with fear and trembling is we're taking what's new inside us that God has placed there and we're bringing those things out to the point where they will eventually overshadow the outside of us, the part of us that's still broken, the part of us that still sins. And we want more and more for things to flow out of this heart of flesh that he gave us than out of our own fleshly desires. We also need to understand the life and death seriousness of what we do. And there's a promise of God here in all this in order to accomplish these things. How can we, how can we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? How can we do this without grumbling or disputing? How is it that we can live a life that's like a shining light in this world today? Listen to this in James 4.8. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Beloved, that's one of the most promising things in all of the scripture. Now this is written to believers. Okay, You cannot draw near to God until you've trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. Because if you try to draw near to God before you've trusted Jesus Christ for salvation and repented of your sins, you're coming near him all covered in sin. And that should only bring fear to come before God with sin. But no, this is to the believer. And the promise is this, draw near to God. And we can do that because we're given the righteousness of Christ. We made an exchange, believer. We gave Jesus Christ our sins. He gave us, according to Romans 3, his righteousness. So the promise is this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then it goes on to say, cleanse your hands, you sinners. It doesn't mean literally. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, if we reflect upon that, we all sin, and we're all double-minded in some ways. This is an encouragement from uh, James to draw near to God. Look at the verse that comes immediately before this. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil he will flee from you. So let's leave it with this today. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. You'll be able to work out your salvation, fear and trembling, shining as lights in this world. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for bringing us together virtually today. I thank you that this, that we have the ability to send us out, and I pray that everyone that receives this is blessed by your word. Lord, do your work in us. This is our prayer, that you would work the will in us, that you would give us the ability to accomplish your will here and to shine as lights here, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to the light of Christ. 
May we do this. May we work out our salvation. Give us the right sense of fear and trembling. Give us the right attitudes to do this without grumbling or disputing so that we can take forth this message of Jesus Christ with great effectiveness. We thank you for bringing us here today and bringing us together. May God be praised. Amen. And indeed, God will be praised. Uh, please feel free to contact us. You can uh, reach us. Uh, you can find out more about us at whitethrun.org or you can email us at whitethronbaptist at gmail.com. So I invite you to send your thoughts and, uh, and please lift up prayers for this ministry and let us know what you think. God bless you.